Jesus, the opportunity, Lord God, to come into this place once more, Lord God, Father, really in the light of your word, Father, tonight, what we desire is for your word, Lord God, to once again be just a greater light into our path, Lord God, just a lamp into our feet, Lord God, just demonstrate, Lord God, your character, your nature, your desire for us. Father, we thank you for the person of the Holy Spirit, Lord God, that makes up that gap, Lord God, of our understanding versus your communication. Lord God, your word says that he's going to come and lead us and guide us into all truths. So tonight, Lord God, we just ask for the spirit of wisdom and the understanding, Lord God, not just to be upon the speaking, but upon the hearing as well, Lord God. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord God, that which you would speak to us tonight. And we give you all the glory and the honor. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. and amen. Yeah, once again, welcome to our Galatians study. Uh, folks, uh, I'm just going to dive right into this. Uh, obviously, we're limited on time, but we're going to get as much in as we can this evening. You know, we've been looking at uh, Paul the Apostle's letter to the church at Galatia. And, you know, he wrote this in response, you'll remember, uh, some of you guys that may be coming in late, in a response to the Judaizers that were coming into the church. And these folks were, you know, were working to really introduce a false gospel into that local church. Uh, that Really what it was saying is that the, uh, the law of Moses was once again necessary for salvation. And you remember that famous verse Paul said... Uh, uh, I marvel that you're so removed from the gospel to another gospel, which is not a gospel at all. Folks, listen, if we add anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's, it's just not another version. It ceases to be a gospel at all. And so if it's anything besides redemption through, uh, by, by faith through, uh, uh, through grace and the finished work of the cross of Calvary, it ceases to be the gospel. It doesn't matter how you dress it up. It doesn't matter the terminology that you place upon it. It's not a gospel. Uh, we were on the streets the other day, and Andrea and I were partnered up on, on Tuesday, and we, we stopped and we began to talk to a guy. And the initial conversation at face value, uh, it sounded very similar uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 59-year-old man, to make a long story short, uh, come to find out that he had been he had studied with the Jehovah Witnesses for years and years and years. And is the, the more questions you ask, the, the more um, elusive that he got on desiring to, to answer those questions. Why? Because it wasn't the same gospel. Initially, when he thought he was the one kind of directing the conversation, he was all chummy and unity, and it's good to talk to brethren. Then as soon as we invited him to our Bible study at the Raven's Nest on Tuesday night, he's like, you know what, we kind of try to avoid interfaith uh, uh, Bible studies. And so you found out real quick that yeah, he even understood. And so I'm, I'm glad that even a Jehovah Witness understood that the gospel he preaches is not our gospel. And, you know, unfortunately, within the confines of Christianity, we don't differentiate those things. We think if somebody uses the name Jesus, if somebody talks about God or whatever else, it's got to be the same thing. Let's all join hands and sing kumbaya. But Paul the Apostle was addressing this church in Galatia. He said, listen, they're coming in, and these Judaizers, they're, they're, they're introducing some terminology that's very familiar with the people. 
And so this familiar tone was something obviously even those that were, were Gentiles were very aware of the, uh, of the customs of the Jews. And so when he began to bring these things in, it wasn't like it was something out in left field that they'd never heard before. But nonetheless, it was a complete deviation from the gospel. So what Paul was, he was astonished that they would be willing to invite the law back in uh, by those people that had never allowed the law to change them. Isn't it amazing that we want to introduce something back into the equation that never brought us victory to begin with. I mean, it's one thing if these people would have saw a great victory under the law and they would have uh, saw themselves being able to walk in holiness and righteousness and say, listen, let me tell you what worked for me. Well, they couldn't even do that. They could say, let me tell you what failed me. And so Jesus had to come to fulfill the law. And, but I want to bring something back in to put you under bondage to something that the only thing that it produced in my life was bondage to begin with. So these false teacher, teachers, if you'll remember what they tried to do to begin with, they wanted to discredit Paul the Apostle. They said, listen, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. They begin to say, listen, we're the ones that were really sent by the, uh, by the actual apostles in Jerusalem. And so anything that they could do uh, to make themselves seem like the true representation of the Jerusalem leaders, they did. But Paul, he withstood their attack, and he began to, to demonstrate his authority and, and uh, uh, credibility by beginning begin to uh, share about his personal revelation of God. And he began to talk about last week his personal visit with Peter, then 14 years later, he went because of that contingency that was sent from Antioch uh, to really to see if we got a problem. Do we have an issue? And if you remember, we talked about last time, what ended up happening? They were in total agreement with him. Even those Judaizers that, that either were there already or followed him from Antioch, they shut them down and said, listen, we're not going to require circumcision of the Gentiles. Just remember the poor people. And he said, listen, that's what we're going to do anyhow. So the first 10 verses of chapter 2, uh, they dealt with the content of Paul's conversion and, and the Jerusalem, uh, conversation excuse me, with the Jerusalem leaders and the necessity to settle that issue to whether or not that requirement for the Gentiles to be circumcised uh, needed to be uh, uh, kept. Then this meeting, what it did, it, it established that that physical circumcision, if you remember, was just a type and shadow of the circumcision that's produced in the heart that brings about sanctification. So it was settled that basically that they would just remember the poor. And so this section that we looked at, was uh, we called it the preparation that was necessary to extend that covenant. Folks, listen, if you're going to extend something, there needs to be a preparation involved in that extension. So Paul the Apostle was setting that up. He went to the church in Antioch, went from the church in Antioch to Jerusalem, and he said, listen, we want to lay the groundwork because something is about to blow wide open. And so that's a lesson for every one of us, especially guys that are called to the ministry. Uh, take the time for the preparation because if you're going to extend an influence into anything, uh, do your diligence to do the preparation in advance. That way, whatever you extend is going to have sustainability and reproducibility over time. So tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to begin to look at 11 through verses 11 through 21, or the next 10 verses, that addresses the confrontation necessary to defend the basis of the new covenant. The confrontation necessary to defend the basis of the new covenant. How many of you guys like confrontation? Anybody just lives for confrontation? You, you don't like it too much? If you don't believe me, you'll confront me on that issue. You know, I think in the body of Christ, um, you know, most people, for the most part, if you can avoid confrontation, don't you try to avoid confrontation? I know a few of you are not like that. John 3.16 is not like that. He's always wanting to confront somebody on something. But you know, if, you can, if you can avoid confrontation, you want to do it. But folks, listen, if there's anything that we need to not avoid confrontation on, it's the defense of the new covenant. And so we, what's happened, though, in, in the modern church era 
is we've ceased to confront things that stand in opposition to the gospel. And just like I said before, as long as it kind of sounds right, you know, God love them. Love wins. You know what? Everybody's okay, and as long as they have the right attitude and the right heart, we don't care if they call God a he or call God a she or, or if they call him Allah or whatever it is. It's all the same thing, and all roads lead to Rome. You know what I'm saying? And so it becomes this, this, this hodgepodge and this, 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 this gumbo of religious philosophies. But listen, when it comes right down to it, like I said, anytime we invite something else into the equation, we change everything. This is not a trick question. I often ask you trick questions. What's one plus one? Yeah. Now, what if I say, what is one plus one plus one? Three. It's three. What if I want it to be two? Tough, right? Don't be wrong. Because anytime I add something else to one and one, it ceases to be two. So, folks, anytime I add something else to the gospel, it ceases to be the gospel. And so, anytime that something's coming to your life, uh, uh, whether a, a, a false teaching, whether it's a, a bad attitude, whether it's the, the improper motivation, whatever it is, anytime that comes in, it's going to change everything. Because I can take a few ingredients and mix those things up, pull one or two out, and I'm changing whatever I've cooked, even though I may have some of the same ingredients. So uh, what we're going to be dealing with here in Galatians 2, 11 to 21, is that confrontation that is necessary. And remember that word necessary. It's not something that, that, that we can say, well, that's somebody else's job. But there's got to be a confrontation that's necessary to defend the faith, to defend the basis of the new covenant. Be ready at all times to what? Give a, a defense. Give an answer to any man that would ask for that reason, that, of that hope that's within you. Be ready at all times to defend it, to confront whatever's necessary to defend the new covenant. So I'm going to read Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 uh, through 21. It says, But Peter, when he came to Antioch, he said, I had to oppose him face to face, for what he did was very wrong. And when he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile Christians who were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some friends of James came, Peter couldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore because he was afraid of the criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish Christians followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by that hypocrisy. And when I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? You and I are Jews by birth. We're not sinners. We're not uh, uh, heathens like these Gentiles were. Yet you know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Jesus Christ so that we might be made right with God because of faith in Jesus and not because we've obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Underline that, whatever translation, no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Folks, listen. The wrath of man, however you want to uh, 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 draw it up, will never accomplish the righteousness of God. You've heard me say for years, it's not enough to be right, we've got to be righteous. Because I can be right. This past weekend out on Bourbon Street, where we minister at Raven Street Church all the time, there were some people that put some signs up that if I had to say, is that thing right or is that thing wrong? If I had to say, were some of those message that, messages that, that I consider appalling because of the context of them. Was some of those scriptures right? Does God hate workers of iniquities? Yeah, he does. He hates those things. But I can take that and I can twist it and I can say, well, God hates homos. Well, is a homo a worker of iniquity? Yes. So by extension, that sign was right. 
But that sign had no benefit to it because what? It's the wrath of man trying to work the righteousness of God. And so nobody was running up saying, thank you so much for addressing me in that way. I think I want to humble myself and repent. Folks, listen, the gospel message does enough to convict by the Spirit of God of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. I don't have to call people queers. I don't have to call people fags. I don't have to use any other slanderous type of epitaphs to address people to bring conviction. It's not my job to convict people. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to convict people of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It's my responsibility to take that word and put it in a person's heart. Why? Because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. That way, when the Spirit of God convicts them, they know what to do with it. They know how to respond to the word. Oh, I know what I need to do. Something's convicting me. The Spirit's convicting me. That God told me that I need to repent for my sin and put my faith in God and, and upon the finished work of the cross of Calvary, and I can be changed and transformed. But folks, anytime that we try to focus on the right rather than the righteous, the only thing that we've ever done is we've accomplished just basically beating our own selves on the chest and talking about what we've done and what we've accomplished. So he tells him, listen, uh, no one can ever be made perfect uh, or, uh, or be made right by obeying the law of God. In verse 17, but suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Jesus and we are found guilty because we've abandoned the law. What would that mean? Christ has led us into sin? And he said, absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner if I, if, now check this out, verse 18, rather I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law that I have already torn down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me, so I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet its requirements so that I might live. My old self was crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. So the life that I live in this earthly body, I do so by trusting in God who loved me and gave himself for me. In verse 21, he said, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right, then there was no need for Christ Jesus to die. So what I want to do today, folks, is I want to take a closer look at this one verse that we started out with as we kind of examined this confrontation and the necessity that came about in defense of the new covenant. So go back to verse 11, and here's what it says. It says, well, when Peter came to Antioch, Paul the apostle preaching, obviously, he said, I had to oppose him face to face for what he did was very wrong. And so if I'm looking at that, there's a statement that really stands out. It's obvious, and it's made by Paul. And really, here's what's interesting to me about it. Now, when this meeting occurred in, in regards to the timeline of those first 10 verses versus these, you know, I don't really know. I don't, I don't know if there's any way you could really know. But it's interesting that they, in this letter to the church at Galatia, they just, they butted those things up. They bookended them together. And so Paul, in an effort to bring unity, is sent with a contingency that, uh, that included, uh, that included a, a, a Gentile. So he goes to Peter and he goes to the leaders of Jerusalem. and He says, listen, let me talk to you guys. Here's what's happening in Antioch. Do you guys stand in agreement with me that salvation comes through justification by faith, faith in what Jesus did, and not by some physical act? And what did they say? Yes. Yes, we totally agree with you. And so he comes back to Antioch. Hip, hip, hooray. Listen, the Gentiles, you guys are just as saved as everyone else. You're not going to have to go follow a law that we couldn't follow. And, man, these people are accepting of you. Then all of a sudden... Peter shows up on the scene, and the story changes. And they're like, well, what happened from Jerusalem to Antioch? That, that Paul the Apostle now is having to confront and, and not just disagree. Now, there's a difference between disagreeing with somebody and opposing someone. Now, I could say, listen, hey, let's go stand on the corner of Bourbon and St. Pete, and you may say, well, let's go stand on the corner of Bourbon and Toulouse. 
I could say, well, you know, Bourbon Toulouse is better because the Raven's Nest is right there. If we need to use the restroom, we just walk up the street. And you could say, well, listen, I, I, I disagree with you, but okay, we'll stand right there. Or I could say, listen, I don't care where you stand. I'm going to the other street. Well, there's a difference in those two things in, in opposition versus disagreement. Now, it doesn't say that he just disagreed with Peter. It says that literally he said, I came and I opposed him face to face. I got nose to nose, spit to spit, ideology and faith to faith with this guy. And I, it was a confront, confrontational situation for what he did was wrong. And so now he's opposing that same Peter that in the first 10 verses, they were in total agreement with one another. How does something like that happen? How does something like that happen? Same way it happens in ministry all the time. Listen, man, I thought we were arm in arm. I thought we were in lockstep with one another. And, and all of a sudden, well, the, the wheels came off. But here, here's what I was thinking about as I studied in Galatians. You know, what was the reason for the opposition? Okay, what was the... We know the reason of the opposition. If you, can, you can read home. And some of you guys obviously know kind of the, the backdrop of this story. But what was the real reason? Because we know just... Ten verses earlier, Peter was in agreement. So, what happened? What happened between Jerusalem and Antioch that these guys that were in agreement, Peter that was in agreement with, with doctrinal truth, how did this guy depart from sound doctrine now? It is bringing about something that opposes the gospel. See, when we hear stuff like, the time is going to come when men will not endure sound doctrine, Right? or they'll depart from the faith and they'll give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Folks, here's the danger. If I try to bring the law back into grace, that's a doctrine of devils. It's like, oh! You know what I'm saying? It's hard to say that. You know, If I'm bringing the law, the requirements of the law that have been fulfilled at the cross back into grace, what I'm doing is I'm introducing a doctrine of devils uh, uh, dressed up in the Judeo-Christian faith. Because just what he says. Listen, if keeping the law could make us right, there was no need for Christ to die. The, the death of Christ was in vain. Was the death of Christ in vain? No. Absolutely not. It's what changed everything. It's what brought a hope not just to, to the Jews but to the Gentiles first. And so what do you think it was that brought about this opposition? Peer pressure? Let's go deeper. Well, what was it that brought the opposition? Than Where does peer pressure have its strength from? Seeking to please man. Huh? Seeking to please man. Seeking to please, please man. Where does that have the, the strength? Pride. Now, pride was the key to every bit of that. What was the, the downfall of, of Lucifer when he was named? Pride. What was the downfall of Adam and Eve in the garden? Oh, you're not going to die. You're going to be like God. He just doesn't want you to know what he knows. I'm going to show you the central issue that brought about this opposition and it's the central issue that typically will bring opposition in every situation. So what we're going to do is I want us to look at, at Peter. And look at Peter's initial introduction in the gospel. And, and, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to uh, talk to you about these because these are very familiar to you. It's in John 1.42. And it says that Andrew, who brought Simon to meet Jesus, it says that he looked intently at Simon. Jesus said, your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter or a little rock. You're going to be that Petros. You're going to be a little rock. And so he was initiated into it. You're going to be that Peter. 
then the name that Christ gives him, it really speaks volumes about the type of person he was. So Jesus has given this guy a name. And what does he call him? He calls him a rock. Okay? Now, what do you think it was that, that drew him to say that? You know? We think about a, a rock, something that's it's immovable. You see what I'm saying? And so this undoubtedly, when Peter showed up on the scene, and we see it through the testimony of his life later on, so we can we ha we have the history, so we can make some some uh, some some conclusions based upon what we know. And so this was a very strong guy, a strong-willed guy, probably a very not probably you can see it many times, very self-confident, probably a very. Uh, uh, imposing individual uh, probably a guy that was the go-getter of the group I mean this was the guy that was kind of the mouthpiece this was the guy that was always out front this was the center of attention this was that guy that showed up on the scene and he's like oh Andrew brought this guy along okay we're gonna change your name we're gonna call you the rock and so the problem <laughs> with these characteristics though is it opens the door to something that really brings about fear in a person's, I mean, it brings about pride in a person's life, then it rears their head. And so consider Matthew chapter 14. Jesus identified some characteristics about him right off the bat. Matthew chapter 14, Peter's the one of the disciple that's beckoning Jesus to, uh, to call him out to walk on the water. You know the story, right? Jesus is coming across the water. Oh, call me, come out. And so Peter did what? He walked on the water. Well, the problem is he sunk like a rock. You know, he's named rock and he sunk like one because he got his eyes off of Christ under the raging sea. And fortunately, he, he walked again. He walked into the boat. Okay? Matthew 16. He's commended. You know, you remember the story. Who do men say that I am? You remember what they said? All these people. And one of them finally said, you, some people say you're John the Baptist and, or, or one of the prophets. Well, and Peter you. said, Simon Barjona, you. you know, you are Christ, the son of the living God. Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. And he said, upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But in the next breath, right there in Matthew 16, get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> He starts telling him, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem. He shares with him the things that he's going to have to suffer. And he says, listen, get behind me, Satan. You become a reproach to me because you're more concerned. What would you say, Dave? With the things of man, the things of God. You're more concerned with what other people think than what I'm thinking. You're too prideful to even recognize that there's a purpose and a reason because you still think it's all about you. John chapter 13, Gospel of John chapter 13. Remember Jesus come in and he's going to wash his feet? Mm-hmm. What did Peter do? He rebuffed him, right? Oh, you're not going to rebuff my feet. And he says, well, unless, uh, unless I, I wash your feet, you can't be a part of my kingdom. Then Peter said, what? Give me a whole bath. <laughs> you see a pattern that's developed. Uh, Matthew chapter 26. This is when uh, they came into the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember what Peter did? How he stood out that night besides taking a long nap? Yeah. He chopped the ear off of Malchus. And, you know, here he is standing up. Now, what could have happened to Peter that night? I mean, he's chopping the ear off the high priest's servant. He put, him, he put his own life at risk. But literally, just a few hours later, what did he do when a servant girl said, I recognize that one? Now he's afraid to be identified. First, he's pulling out his sword, cutting people's ears off. Now when a little girl says, oh, I recognize that guy, now he's afraid, oh, I'm not either, blankety-blank-blank. Do you think a disciple of Jesus would talk like that? And so what he's doing, he's doing everything uncharacteristic of what he was doing just literally hours 
before in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so this is really a clear example of the double-mindedness that, that's built upon an ongoing struggle with pride. Folks, listen, if you're walking in pride, you're always going to be double-minded. Why is that? Why is that? You're unstable, all right? You're double-minded, but why is it if you're walking in pride, you're going to be double-minded, thus unstable? Because you're seeking different people's opinions and people's opinions. Seeking change. different people's opinions. Divided Let's break it down to the purest thing. Why? Because who, yeah, who does pride exalt? It exalts self. And he rejects the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so if I'm walking in pride, what have I done? I've set myself at difference against the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. See, I'm not going to have the mind of Christ if I'm walking in pride. Don't be conformed to the image of this world. What's the image of this world? Pride. Oh, let me take you up on the pinnacle and get, show you all these great things that you can have. Oh, if you eat from this tree, uh, you're going to find that it's good to eat. It's, 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 it's beautiful to look at. It's going to give you all this knowledge and this power. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Which is the pride of life. All of those things that appeal to our senses. And so his double-mindedness was at the root. I mean, his pride was at the root of this double-mindedness. And so in every one of those instances, though, what you see? You saw Jesus completely just still giving mercy and giving grace and all these things. Until you see him running in John chapter 21. He finds him right there on the, on the, the, the banks of the sea. And what is he asking? What's the question he asked Peter? Do you love me? After all this has gone, gone down, after you've, you've, you've pulled all these stunts, you've, you've, you've revealed your character, all these things, he said, do you love me? For me, I think he was really asking the question, what is it that really motivates you? What is the reason behind everything that you're doing? Why did you, do you remember why you left those nets three years ago? Left your livelihood and you came and followed me? Do you remember when, when we fed the 5,000 that day and afterwards everybody left? And I said, are you going to leave too? And you said, where will we go? You have the words of life. What, what was the motivation then? What was the motivation in, in every sacrifice that you had to make? In laying your life down and being opposed and, and being beaten and being rejected. What was the, the motivation? Or the question could be, are you dependent upon me? Or are you still walking in the same pride that caused that collapse? To begin with. So what is the motivation? Is it a self-serving thing that you're just utilizing me to get what you want when you want to get it? And, and get it? And so the, the reason I want to point that out is, 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 is uh, Paul's addressing this is really that character demonstrates exactly how that enemy will always attempt to revisit old iniquities. Every single time. The enemy is not a creative being, guys. Listen, what he does, he comes and he knocks on the same doors. He does. And so what he does, if he finds a pathway into your life, and you know what iniquity, what's a good definition for iniquity? Is it what? It's a path of least resistance. It's a well-worn place. And so it's like somebody, if you enter in sense, like, you know what, I mean, I'm never going to smoke a cigarette. And you smoke one. I never thought I'd do that before. You know what? It's easier to smoke the next one. Mm -hmm. I'm never going to do drugs. Well, I did it, man. And you're just chasing the next high. Or, or I'm never going to uh, uh, to give myself away uh, sexually. Man, it just gets easier and easier and easier. Well, what? That's an iniquity that's been brought into a person's life, and it becomes a path of least resistance. So in Peter, man, we saw all these things at the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be confirmed. 
And so there was an iniquity of pride that was brought into his life. And so the enemy, even years later, even after having met with Paul the Apostle, even after the resurrection of Jesus, even after being a stalwart and a force in the, in the kingdom, the enemy still comes and knocks on that same door of pride for his life. And see, you see it happening when Peter came to, to Antioch, and it resulted in Peter, I mean, Paul having to, to confront or to oppose him face to face. We're going to get into the specifics of what that opposition was here in a minute. But what I want to do is I want to point out an issue on correcting leaders. Because even those of the magnitude of Peter are not off limits. And, it's, and we're talking about correction. You know, something has slipped into the church. And I know John 316 this and Pastor Brandon, and different ones have seen it before. Is this whole thing about um, that really ministers or pastors or leaders, once you get to a certain point... That you're you're bulletproof. That no one touch not my anointed. What is it? First uh, Chronicles sixteen twenty two, which says, "Don't touch my anointed and don't do my prophets no harm." And so people have said, "Listen, you can't speak out." In, in certain cultures of Christianity, you're like I, I know when I was in Texas, the Latino churches. You know what, man? I tell you what. If it was a Latino church, uh, especially uh, of the Mexican persuasion. Man, you didn't ever say anything bad about the leader. I mean, he could have three girlfriends on the side. He could be embezzling the church. He could be doing everything under the sun. You just didn't say anything about that because God will take care of him. No, God will take care of you if you don't walk in obedience. And it becomes the blind leaders of the blind. And so this is not what it's talking about in, in, in 1 Chronicles 16, 21, uh, 22, which uh, John three sixteen mentioned. It's not talking about individual leaders touching those anointed or pastors that err. It's literally a reference to the covenant that God had made with Israel or those anointed or set-apart people for a purpose that he had for them. When he said, don't touch my anointing, I've set them apart. There's a reason that I did that. And don't do my prophets any harm. Why? Because the prophets of Israel often had a voice to speak to the other nations. And the other nations could hearken unto the voice of God through the voice of the prophet. And so he was given a warning here in First Chronicles. Listen, don't touch those that I've set apart. I set them apart for you. Folks, there's a reason that God raised up Israel. He raised them up as an example. They were the ones that had been handed the initial uh, a great commission to spread the gospel and bring people into the kingdom. Their tool was obviously the law, bringing people as a peculiar people. Ours is obviously the gospel of Jesus Christ under a different covenant. But it's the exact same thing that is the driving force behind them all. So the warning here is against prophets that, that they're going to be good to you. But somehow preachers, pastors, teachers, whatever, they've taken it out of context and they never have to face correction. Folks, that's not good Bible. Many, many years ago, this probably been in the, the, the middle 90s, there was this big sweeping push once again of the false teaching of the spiritual death of Jesus. It says when Jesus died upon the cross that, that, that God had to turn his face away from him and that Jesus suffered at the hands of the devil for, for three years and, and Satan abused him in, in hell and all these things that just... Biblically cannot happen. Okay? Biblically they cannot happen. Three days or three years? Pardon three days, excuse me, three days in, in, in hell and, and all this abuse that he had to, then finally at the end of the three days, he, he got up and he was energized and, and like a wrestler putting his finger up for the third times in the middle of the ring. Uh, he grabbed the keys from the devil and the devil was defeated. Not Bible, okay? But there was this big push and all these TV preachers, I could name them all today, but I'm not even gonna worry about it today. And so I was preaching against, the, I was opposing those things uh, in opposition against false doctrine in the church. 
Well, there happened to be a, a lady in our church at the time who, you know, quote unquote, sold a lot of money into these ministries and, you know, got the prayer cloths and the, 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 the miracle oil from Jerusalem or whatever it was that she was getting all the time. And she came up to me afterwards. And she said, how can you say that? I said, say what? How can you say those guys were wrong? I said, because they are. And I said, I went on record. It's not something I'm making up. I, I played actual uh, audio tapes of what they said. I gave excerpts from their books. So it wasn't just something I said, you know what? I just don't like old such and such over there. He's got too big of a church. And so we don't like people with big church. It wasn't anything like that. And so I, I told her, I said, so how do you defend their doctrine? And she said, well, I don't want to. She said, I would have just rather have not even known. I would rather have not even known. Folks, listen, ignorance is not bliss when it comes to the kingdom. Ignorance is not a free pass. My people perish from a lack of knowledge because they think that ignorance is bliss. Folks, that's just not good Bible. But talking about the confrontation of leaders, which is exactly what he's done, and I think this is a good place to talk about it. First Timothy chapter 5 verses 19 and 20. 1 Timothy 5, 19 20 says this. Paul the Apostle speaking, once again, this pastoral epistle to Timothy. He said, Against an elder do not receive an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. And then, them that sin, rebuke before all, that others may fear. Against an elder don't receive an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin, rebuke before all, that others may fear. Let me ask a question. It may be in a smaller group like this, but somebody online, I'm sure, is a situation. Have you ever been in a church that maybe had a pastor that fell into sexual immorality? Yes. Mm -hmm. you, you have. Mm -hmm. So what happened when they rebuked him before everyone? It never happened. It never happened. Who else has been in a church similar? What happened when they rebuked him before everyone? Never happened. Never happened. What about you, Benjamin? It, it never happened. Mm -hmm. And so that never happened. I can guarantee what did happen. I can guarantee that there was people in those churches that said, listen, man, if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. If they can get by with it. Folks, listen, there is a, there's carnage in the kingdom from fallen leaders. I, I could name people that are some of the most popular ones out there today that just wait a few years and you'll see them on stage with another woman or another husband. And you know what? They never miss a lick. Why? Because no one withstands them face to face and rebukes them so that all can fear and learn. That's what he goes on to say. He said, don't receive it, but them that sin rebuke before all so that others may fear. So Paul, he's laying down literally a protocol in which a charge or rebuke is brought against the leader. But he gives some criteria. What did he say? He said before two or three witnesses. That rendering that word witness could literally be translated through two or three records or verifiable examples. And so if somebody comes to me and says, listen, uh, Pastor Brandon said such and such the other day to somebody. You want me to say you need to take that somewhere else. Now, two or three people are coming to me, or two or three people have approached that and broached that on several occasions, and it's a pattern. Now what am I going to do? I'm going to come, and I'm going to address that issue with him. If he doesn't repent, he's going to get rebuked before all, so all may fear. Mm -hmm. But it says between before two or three witnesses. Folks, listen. As a believer, as a leader, let's just bring it back to what we're talking about. Man, you're always going to have somebody saying something against you. You are, but you're just not ever going to have... If, if you're walking in righteousness, not those verifiable examples. We, we, we taught out of, out of Titus, we talked about you have a, 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 a good reputation with those that are out. And so you live above reproach. Living above reproach isn't 
living in the Jerusalem that nobody says anything bad about you. Is what they call Jesus. They said he was drunkard, wine bibber, he's a friend of sin. All these things that they, they accused him of all these type of things. They said he cast out <laughs> devils in, in the name of the devil. And so being a broke reproach doesn't mean that people won't sin. There's just not going to be any verifiable evidence of it. And so Paul's telling Timothy, he says, listen, two or three witnesses bring something verifiable. This is required so that some isolated instance can't be taken out of context in an attempt to unfairly paint a picture of someone's character. Folks, take, for instance, uh, Noah after the flood. Do you remember what happened to Noah immediately after the flood with his son, Ham? Mm -hmm. Remember the story? Yeah. He walked in, saw his father there, laying there drunk and naked. Okay? And so what did he do? He began to come outside. He put his business on the streets. Ah, look at Dad. He's in there a little drunk. Was Noah an alcoholic? Was Noah a, a drunkard? He wasn't. Was there, any, was there ever any other example of Noah doing something like that? Never. And so what was it? It was an isolated incident that did not define who Noah was. Because what did God call Noah? He called him a righteous man. He was righteous. Him and just the eight people to save on the earth because of Noah's righteousness. And so Ham didn't do what the word said. His brothers did. It says they took a cloak and they walked in backwards to cover their father's nakedness. Why? Because they said to themselves, listen, this isn't who he is. We're not going to receive that accusation against our father because one isolated instance. Now, why that happened? You know, I could speculate. Maybe because they were floating around so long they didn't get to, 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 to pull out some fresh grapes or whatever else and ferment and he drunk to I mean, I could speculate and I could probably formulate a pretty good argument why that thing would happen. Because I know it was contrary to the character of Noah for that to happen, right? right. And so you don't receive that accusation. So what was the consequence on Ham? He was, he was cursed right from that thing. Why? Because he brought a, a false accusation outside of biblical protocols that existed even before 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. So the pattern of behavior, though, for Peter was documented in the life of the, life of the Gospels. And now we see that same iniquity uh, rearing its ugly head and having to be rebuked by uh, the Apostle Paul strongly. Folks, listen. Because leaders have been given such an enormous responsibility to speak into other people's lives, they also have got to welcome and invite an accountability on many levels into their lives. If you have a desire to be a leader, you better be willing to bring all sorts of level of accountability into your life. Accountability of, of correction, accountability of questioning what you're doing. And you, you can't shudder because somebody's asking you something that you feel uncomfortable asking or, or having been asked. You've got to be willing to open yourself up. I've said for years, you know what, in, in a room like this, some of you might say, well, everybody here is accountable to you. But you know who I'm accountable to? Everybody in this room. And so if I'm preaching some erroneous doctrine or I'm doing something uh, outside the will of God, or you know what? I expect you to say, PT, i got an issue here. Let's, let's talk. I, I, I want to know what this is. Can you bring a clarification? Tell me about it. You have an open door for that. Folks, but what's happened and why you have such a, 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 a disregard for leadership and you have so many errors in the, in the body of Christ is because that door is never open. It's back to that First Chronicles, touch not my anointed, do my prophet no harm. I'm uh, uh, untouchable and I'm uncorrectable. So a leader has got to invite accountability into their lives. Folks, listen, because when we invite accountability into our lives, it demonstrates a willingness to submit ourselves one to another as unto the Lord. And so when I invite accountability in, it demonstrates a willingness 
to, to walk in leadership and to, to rightly govern according to the protocols of Scripture. And so they can't become untouchable and unapproachable religious figureheads, and they should see and invite the questions and biblical proof as a safety net into their lives. Otherwise, what ends up happening? What happens is, is they become unbridled, they become unmanageable, they become an unprofitable person that just masquerades as a leader, but in reality, they just become that blind leader of the blind, and no one ever gets anywhere. Why? Because no one is ever willing to meet the muster of the requirements. Years ago at a, at a Mardi Gras outreach, we had a group, a team that had worked with us at that point, and we was having some major problems with, with this group. And I sat down this group, because they all happened to come to our Mardi Gras outreach, and I told them, I said, listen, what I'm seeing with you folks, it was in another city, I said, is a total absence of leadership. And so there was two, two of the guys that were seated at the table, much like this, on opposite sides of one another. And I asked one of them, I said, do you consider yourself a leader? And he said, of course I consider myself a leader. And I said, so who are you leading? And he pointed at the guy across the table. So I asked the guy across the table, I said, so do you consider yourself a leader? And he said, yeah. And I said, who are you leading? And he pointed at the guy that pointed at him. I said, guys, that's not a leader. That's a dog chasing its own tail. But you know what? They were adamant. They thought they were leading one another. Folks, that doesn't happen. There's got to be a submission to authority. And so there's got to be that safety net. There's got to be that, that willingness to become bridled and become manageable in the kingdom. So Paul, he just didn't go off on some whim, but he followed the guidelines, and he rebuked them before all so that others would fear. So this wasn't some passive, aggressive, ambiguous Facebook posting, where, but it was a direct confrontation. It wasn't something like, huh, I know why he's saying that, because I remember we had that little issue, and so he's probably pointing that issue at me or whatever. It was a direct confrontation, and the opposition to outright error and the purpose of it was so that other people would not make the same destructive mistakes that Peter had made. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5 says that open rebuke is better than secret love. What's better than secret love? Open rebuke. Hebrews 12, 6, for the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. What does he do to those that he accepts as his child? Punishes them. He punishes them. And so what we want to do is we want to think the love of God is, is avoiding punishment. It's avoiding correction. No, folks, you know how I know that I'm in the love of God? When I am corrected. When I'm not convicted, when I'm not corrected, when I think that everything's okay and I'm going easy street, folks, that's when I need to take a, uh, take a look around and find out exactly who I'm following. And see if I'm actually following after the Lord. So Peter was corrected because Peter was obviously correctable. Okay? Paul could correct him because Peter was correctable, which was also evidenced by his previous character. Because I gave you all those times where Peter was in error. But what happened every time Peter got dealt with? He was correctable. He humbled himself, and he was correctable. So Paul, knowing Peter from their experience, says, listen, he's in error, but I'm going to correct him because I know he's correctable. Folks, you can only correct those that are correctable. Do you hear what I'm saying? It doesn't do any good to try to correct someone that's not subject to that type of correction. And so when you try to correct a fool, what does the Bible say happens to you? You become a fool. Correct a fool or a non-correctable uh, correctable person, you become a fool just like them. So when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him face to face for what he did was very wrong. We're out of time. What we're going to talk about next week is... What was it that he did that was so wrong? What was it that he did that was so wrong? Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord God, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord God, for, for, for sending truth into our life, for bringing correction to us, Lord God. 
Father, we invite correction by your Holy Spirit, Lord God, and by the body of Christ in one another's lives, Lord God, for anything, Lord God, that would set us outside of those boundaries. Lord God, we want to walk in submission. We want to walk, Lord God, bridled, Lord God. We don't want to walk, Lord God, as just one that just 